before we jump into this conversation, just a quick word of thanks to the good folks over at the Quilty Nook. Without your ongoing support, projects like this just wouldn't be possible. You're listening to Seamside, where we explore the inner work of textiles. I'm your host, Zach Foster, and in each episode, we explore what working with cloth has taught us about being human. I hope you enjoy. You know, I I can think of two good reasons why you might want to leave a review for this podcast. Number one, it just makes my heart so happy. Number two, it's how the little algorithm picks this podcast up to share with other people who might be interested in it. So if you're getting something out of these conversations, why not take a moment and write me something like this from A.H. France, who says, Never before has a podcast conferred such a feeling of home for me. This podcast is a source of inspiration, a salve for those of us who don't feel like, quote, real artists, because we work in a, quote, craft medium or on the side, and a community and a family for those without a tangible stitch and circle. Thank you, Zach and guest, for putting this lovely work into the world. Amen and amen, A.H. friends. I can't wait to hear what the rest of y'all got to say. So go ahead and leave me a review. And now, without further ado, Seamside is back with season two better than ever. You know, I had so much fun with y'all last season, I decided it was time to go buy a fancy new microphone. And the reviews said it makes it sound like I'm sitting right next to you. I hope that's the case. I have taken the last couple months to line up some really remarkable guests for us. Some that will surely inspire us, maybe sometimes console us if we're having a rough patch, and maybe even at times challenge us in all the right ways. We kick off Season 2 with Sarah Trail, the director of the Social Justice Sewing Academy. What started as a one-off summer program at Berkeley has grown into a national movement of new quilters, experienced quilters, and community leaders coming together to empower young folks to tell their own stories in textiles, whether or not they've ever sewn a stitch before. You're in for a real treat with this conversation. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're at? Help our listeners at home envision where you're sitting right now. Yes, I'm in Oakland, California. I have requested the morning off to connect with Zach. Yeah, I'm going to, in a little bit, be going back to work. I work in a Bay Area jail, working with adults, getting their high school diploma and GED. And so all the students that I have on my caseload are 18 and up because it is an adult jail, not a juvenile hall. And it's just a restorative justice educational program focused on helping them not only get their diploma, but then help with recovery, employment, and other you know life skills they need to not only integrate back into the community, but become successful and thrive. We're trying to move people from just surviving to a level of thriving back into the world that has often neglected them. I don't want to like fan over here too much, but like, I don't know how you do all this. And I'm sure we'll get into it over the next hour. Let's start with what might be a controversial question, because normally here on Seamside, we do some hand sewing. But I've heard you say in other interviews and conversations that you really don't care for hand sewing. Is that still true? It is. I think that I admire hand sewing. Like I think if I had to pick a skill, I love applique. I love raw edge. I love embellishment. I love French knots, you know, more than I would say, quote unquote, you know, machine quilting. But I think in terms of doing it, I hate hand sewing. And it's not, I think I hate, I hate it because I'm not good at it. And I think I also like, if you know me, like I'm very fast and I want like instant success. And if I don't get it, let me try a different method. Um, I like long arm, not because I'm good at it, but because it's fast and it's fun. But I, I really think if I were to ever get good at, if I could hand sew like Sean Kimber, I would like hand sewing because I'd like the result. However, when I try, it doesn't look like her work. So it doesn't make me want to enjoy it. So I'll stick with Lisa Butler's technique of let me get a long arm and go fast. Getting ready for this conversation, a quote came to mind that I read recently. And it says there are two ways to experience the wind. One is to stay perfectly still and the other is to run. And I'm like, I have a sense that Sarah is a runner. I 100% would agree. So... Sarah, I heard that you made your first quilt when you were four years old. What possessed a four-year-old to make a quilt? A burnt-out mom. I definitely had a stay-at-home mom. Um, I was blessed with that. I come from a really, I wouldn't say socioeconomically super privileged, but I come from a middle-class background. I'm the only child of two college-educated parents, and my mom was very big on the fundamental, like, educational and just personal, emotional learning you know, as a young kid is like the most important foundation. So I'd say until I was like in first, second grade, my mom was stay at home. 
So it's like I'd go to daycare, I'd go to kindergarten, and then I'd come home and there'd be more school. And so I think for my mom, sewing was something that she could do at home. She had a sewing machine, you know, our family. I'd say it was like loosely cultures, but I wouldn't say like anyone could tell you what like a flying geese pattern was, but everyone kind of knew how to, you know, sew basic things growing up in the South. And so my mom was always working on quilts and I'd be like, oh, I want to sew too. My mom would let me make my own so I wouldn't ruin hers. But oftentimes I'd want to work on hers because mine wouldn't look as good. And so as you look at her quilts, I'd be like, mom, all your seams are off. And she's like, Sarah, I sewed my, all my quilts with you on my lap. You wouldn't let me guide my own fabric. But that kind of speaks to her selflessness. I think my mom, I would never let anyone touch my quilts. When I'm making a quilt and I have, you know, a daughter, Sophia, I have a, a young girl that, you know, I'm fostering because her mom is in jail and just a whole bunch of stuff. But really like Sophia wants to, you know, cut and glue fabric and she can, just not my art pieces. I think there's a level of, of love to let your kid, you know, ruin. And I said by ruin, I mean it loosely, but like I definitely jacked her seams up. None of her squares were on point and her quarter inch seams turned into half an inch because... You know, I wanted to help. And I think that, that, you know, her patience with me is definitely really exuded onto my patience with others. I wonder what your mom thinks now looking at those quilts that she made sitting with you on her lap messing up her stitches. Yeah, you know, I think there's two things. My dad would be like, you know, Sarah, by the time you were 10, you've made enough blankets. Why did you keep wanting to make blankets like we had enough? And my mom was always like, Eddie, it's not about her making blankets. It's about her learning one, to start and finish something. It's two, learning the skill and the design. Three, call them quilts, not blankets, Eddie. Four, this is cheaper than babysitting. She's entertaining herself. Five, I think really it was just, my mom kind of understood the art form of quilting. and was like, if she wants to keep making as many quilts as she wants to, we're going to support it. Whereas my dad was like, you know, we have more than enough quilts for every bed in this house. Why do you keep making them? They're expensive. And I think like, I think after a while, he's like, oh, I get it. Like, I think my dad just didn't grow up with quilters. So he now appreciates them. But even, you know, a few days ago, he has his little, my dad has like an antique car that he loves. And I went outside to look at his antique car and he has one of the quilts that I made when I was eight years old, covering his antique car in the garage. And I said, dad, and he's like, what? You have so many of these quilts, you know, it's not getting rained on, it's in the garage. And I was like, absolutely not. You need to go get a, a regular quilt, not a quilt that I make. These are special. And he's like, it's my special car. I was like, no. So I think my dad is still working on, I think, the appreciation of recognizing, you know, kind of what kind of quilts can go in beds. And he's gotten quilts. My dad will take his Father's Day gift and want to go put it outside on his car. And I'm like, no. He's like, but you gave it to me. I'm like, that. And he's like, it's not ever going to get rained on or dirty. I'm like, you do not put a quilt that I made outside covering your car. We're working on him. He's a work in progress. But nevertheless, he bought all the fabric for almost all my quilts. So I can't begin to exude the appreciation that I have to show for both of my parents and their limitless financial supporting of not only quilts, but of fashion design. I went to an upholstery stage where I wanted to go to Goodwill and buy furniture and get staple guns and nail brads and I wanted to upholster fabric. Then I went in the curtain drapery phase where I wanted to go decor fabric places and I wanted to make 12 foot chandeliers and balances and just, I mean, literally, you name it. And then not to mention the beading and pottery and all the other I went into a glass blowing stage where I wanted to be a glass blower, and that was an expensive undertaking too. So I think that really having parents that will blindly support any creative endeavor I've done has really not only broadened my horizon to the outlooks of what kind of art mediums are out there, but it's really, I think, just enhanced my levels of creativity. And I think my fearlessness in working with a lot of mediums, that I think the confidence that I have internally, and I'm definitely not the best artist. It's not about the art form, it's about the unwavering lack of fear of trying new things that I think I can often help bring into a classroom and help deliver and give, even subliminally, just by example, to a lot of young people. Yeah, we should all be so fortunate. It's really about just mitigating resources. I think these things shouldn't be these things in ivory towers. Glass blowing shouldn't be so expensive. Sewing doesn't need to be more expensive. You've got to figure out a way. I think SSA has done it, of like asking for donated fabric and then giving it back. But like with other art mediums, you know, I wouldn't know how to make that restorative cycle you know, that process of donation possible, but fabric is something reuse, recycle, restore, you know, there's so many creative reuse stores of like, we can bring sewing and we can make sewing accessible and free. It just has to be the right space and someone being willing to donate the time and talent, which is something that I think in creating SJSA, this intergenerational community of those who have the time and talent, mainly the talent and the resources to donate can give it back to these kids directly. And I think that, you know, it wouldn't be the same without the buy-in we have of experienced and talented quilt artists. And I do want to talk to you about your, your role of creating and establishing SJSA. Something like that is also a work of art in its own right. And I want to talk to you about that. 
But I also want to talk to you as Sarah as person in your wholeness, just also everything else that you do, right? And so another question I had was, was it your mom's great-grandma or your dad's great-grandma that made the quilt that you My mom's. Okay, so you, you said your dad didn't come for that tradition, but your mom did have that understanding. Yes, so my mom's great-great-great, so she's my great-great-grandma. So my mom's great-great-great-grandma was an Ethiopian slave that was renamed Margaret Smart, who was bought by an old white pedophile. At the, he was like 34 and she was 13, and through a whole bunch of rape, you know, that's the lineage of like my great-grandparents. They, you know, got their last name changed to Cox. Um, and in Alabama, there's a Cox plantation with, you know, 100 plus acres. My grandma still has like 50 of those acres in Alabama. It's like near Union Springs, like in a really racist kind of area. But a lot of my family, you know, still lives out there and still, you know, keep that land. And I think that it's a level of resilience, but I think it's also a level of, of beauty through something so tragic. Knowing that you're like coming from a lineage of rape and pedophilia isn't something that's really empowering. But when you factor in that, like, you know, one of my great grandmas was a quilter, in spite of being a slave, in spite of being a mom, in spite of all the other horrors I'm sure she was subjected to. It's interesting. And I think my grandma was given the quilt when I was four and making all these quilts, my grandma gave it to my mom. So when Sarah gets older, give her this quilt. So I remember seeing the quilt and it's like, it looks like a G's bin quilt of like, it's just patched with like an apron and like the front of a dress. Like you can see some jeans and like they mix dinner. Like it's really clothes kind of patched together. There's no proper binding on it. They just kind of folded the edge. But more than that, you can see lumps of cotton with thistles still in the quilt. And I remember looking at it like, mom, like, why didn't they do anything right? Like they clearly didn't use a rotary. You know, a six and seven year old, it was kind of like, Sarah, you don't understand. You're, you're getting the privileged side of sewing. You're not getting the resourceful, make it from what, you know, you have type view of sewing. You're getting the, let's go to Joanne's and buy you a quilt and starter pack version of sewing. And just explaining that there can be multiple levels and variances of how you enter, you know, the sewing industry that all might not start from the place of privilege that you are. You know, rotaries weren't around 200 years ago, Sarah, and blah, blah, blah. I think after kind of realizing all that, I definitely, you know, my mom then, we had lessons on G's Bend. We had lessons on the AIDS quote. We had lessons on, my mom really did a very intentional job kind of teaching me, particularly African-American quilt history, and kind of realizing that a lot of people sewed because it wasn't because they were rich and having fun, kind of what the quilting industry is reflective of now. They were sewing because they couldn't afford a blanket and this was the only way they could stay warm. And as I learned more of like true American people's history and you know, lies my teacher told us, really learning about slave conditions, quilt could be often the life or death factor in making it through harsh winters. So I think that a quilt became more than just a symbol of things that I was making for fun, but just recognizing that other people, my ancestors personally, you know, were sewing as an act to stay alive. Sewing is an act of resistance. Sewing is an act of resilience. They weren't sewing for the, the beauty and process that I myself was. So understanding the juxtaposition between the relationships that my ancestors had with sewing versus that I was now creating with sewing was always something that I kept in the back of my mind. It's a really long arc, isn't it? Between sewing for survival and then also sewing for expression. I also think it's a marvel that this quilt has stayed in your family and the story has stayed intact with it. You know who made it and you know how you can trace its lineage to you. Occasionally you hear stories of quilt historians that are trying to date a quilt and to date a quilt they'll sometimes unpick a corner or something to study what's inside. And oftentimes they find hair of the maker in that quilt. Because you know, as you're bent over sewing, things are just gonna parts of you will just drift in. And I just think just that thought, not that I'm recommending you undo your great great grandmother's quilt, but just the thought that part of her physically is also there somewhere. A hundred percent. And what a touchstone to have in your home as a young person learning to quilt. I think it was definitely like a grounding rock in the sense of like, this is where some people started. And I feel really blessed and fortunate to have the privilege to start at a very different, you know, as you just said in ARC, I started a lot closer to a, a safer, more privileged, you know, way. My introduction to quilting was, you know, my mom taught me a bit. And then by the time I was seven, eight, I was like, mom, I want to go to real quilt classes. No offense, but you're not that good. You know, I want to make good quilts. My mom would be like, okay, like, let's go to the, you know, we went to the quilt stores. Do you guys have any kids classes? They'd be like, no. And I'm like, well, can I join the beginner adult? And slowly but surely, you know, they were like, you know, what quilt store doesn't include young people? So quilt stores really have an inclusive, you know, mindset, which I was really fortunate for. And they let me in the adult beginner classes. And after, you know, I took a few of those, I was in medium level adult classes. And then before ninth grade, I was in the advanced adult classes. What do you think your mom would say about you? How would she describe you to her friends or coworkers? I think she'd say Sarah is a firecracker that needs to often slow down. 
She moves with her heart before she moves with her brain. And she makes choices that often can affect everyone. But at the end of the day, she knows she's loved enough to, you know, we'll support, you know, kind of whatever. I think my mom would definitely always advise me to slow down, whether I'm giving a speech or whether I'm just, you know, just talking in general. Sarah, slow down so everyone can hear you. And I think often that comes from a level of, you know, people can understand fast stuff now. Like it's, we're, we're millennials, you know, we have technology. I think just because you understand things a lot slower, she's like, Sarah, you just, you're not clear. You have a little lisp, like all sorts of stuff. But I'm, you know, I'm not speaking fast because I'm nervous. I'm speaking fast because I'm excited. I think that I'm, I live life with like, you know, if I'm excited about something, I think my speed will naturally crescendo and get a lot faster. Not necessarily louder, but like, there's a lot that I want to say and I only have like 30 seconds. So let me say more than try to slow down and fit less in. I think there's a big picture and I don't think that I can ever explain everything. And, you know, a small interview or lecture, you know, even podcasts, like there's just so much to it. You have to understand the intersectionality of the layers. You have to understand a parent's socioeconomic background, their upbringing, how I was upbringing, even the problematicness of it. I was raised in really private Christian schools. And while obviously I'm a Christian, you know, I believe in have my own relationship with God. I went to a private white, predominantly Republican, predominantly rich Christian school where we had conversations such as, you know, slavery was part of God's plan and just these part, like everything was part of God's plan. So like from civil rights to, you know, rape and like all of that was just part of God's plan. And I, I disagree. I don't think, I think that saying that everything is part of God's plan isn't fair. And I think, you know, going to a school where it was just very using religious as a tool of genocide and the slaughtering of Native Americans and the lack of queer authors we read. I think my school, yes, it prepared me to read and write. And yes, going to UC Berkeley and Harvard wasn't academically, you know, super hard for me because I went to a good school. But I think that what I lost going to that private school was definitely the culturally relevant curriculum that my parents kind of shored me up with at home. I think it was interesting. And I remember going into school because we'd have arguments and my teachers would be very pro. They just didn't like Democrats. And being a liberal in the Bay Area, I thought that like, like what's going on? But in this level of wealth, the school went, it was just eye-opening. They definitely accepted me as a diversity token. I was like, you know, a scholarship kid compared to, you know, my, the, most of like my, my peers and classmates. But I think more than that, I remember going in and I was like, you know, something that we need to think about because they always talked about rules and law and order is like, this is what you're supposed to follow, like follow the police, listen. And it's like, you know, going home, like you can't just always listen to the police. You can't just all like, sometimes things aren't fair. You have to change things. And I remember like a quote that really stirred up a lot of controversy in my school was like, the people that hid Anne Frank were breaking the rules. The people that killed her were following them. And I remember like, you guys keep talking about law and order and following rules of the constitution as this, you know, biblical and golden rule of like what we should listen to. The constitution was written when black people weren't even considered human. What are we talking about in the hierarchy of what sources we're listening to and the hierarchy of whose voices are being valued in the school? And I remember, you know, just kind of like the Bible is above everything. And yeah, it was just a lot of pushback. As much as you guys are talking about this and it's like, even my relationship with the white Jesus that my school portrayed, like you guys, it, the Bible says that his hair was like wool and every picture we have in our school is him white with blue eyes, like blonde hair and blue eyes. Like it was just, it was really, I think if I didn't have my parents shoring up, not only my racial identity, but my critical identity, I would have really, you know, I could have been lost in the mix. And I think that in my time, that frustration came. I went to a really rigorous, you know, college prep school where almost all my peers went to Yale, Spelman, Brown. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to Berkeley. And they're like, oh, you're going to be with the hippies. Like that was not, a, I was like, Berkeley is a good school, but they were not, you know, they were, it was very private school run, private school, Ivy League, you know, that was the goal. But I think more than that, I think kind of understanding that both can exist. You can have, you know, a relationship, you know, spiritually and not just accept everything as part of, you know, a divine maker's plan. And I think that, you know, really, I think personally, like I would go home, my mom would have me reading. Audre Lorde, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, Kimberly Crenshaw, in addition to the rigors of my school. And not only would I have to read these books and this critical literature with her, I'd have to write essays for my mom on top of all the essays that I had for my school. I can't tell you how in middle school, I'd be like, mom, like, I have enough homework, please. She'd be like, no, Sarah, your school is to teach you to read and write. I'm at home going to teach you how to think. And you've got to have a more critical awareness of the world because the school, you know, we know, you know, eat the meat and leave the bones on the table. Like your school is to teach you how to, you know, get into college and do well in college. At home, we're here to teach you how to view the world and kind of change and challenge your perspective on what sort, like who you're going to listen to, understand what bias does that author have and, you know, just all sorts of stuff. So I was reading just different. It was just like double school. And I feel like as a kid, I'm like, mom, no one else has to do that. 
She's like, Sarah, you have to work. I think it's a black mantra in the black community. You have to work twice as hard to be half as good. And I think while I don't agree with that, in society's norms, I understand why it was said. I want to meet your mom. She sounds like a formidable, incredible person. She assigns readings for fun. I can ask a question. She'll be like, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to send you a PDF. Let me know when it's read and we can discuss tomorrow. She is very, I think college did her well. And she really kind of gained a critical you know, awareness. And I think it's not about telling me what she wants me to feel, but about like, oh, you have a question on this? Go read these three authors. Let me know what you think. Formulate your own opinion. And then let's discuss. She had me read books. She completely, I read so much Ben Carson and I've read Trump's autobiography. I mean, I've read people that I do not agree with, but nevertheless, she's like, you need to understand their perspective. It's not just about reading what I believe in, but like, you know, challenging a whole bunch of perspectives. And I've read Candace Owens stuff and I personally can't stand that woman, but it's nevertheless, I'm going to read to seek to understand, not to seek to believe. And I think that, you know, kind of aligning myself with things that not only I don't believe, but also the things I do believe really just give me like, I can understand when people are saying, well, blah, 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 because I've read what you've read and I'm understanding. I didn't believe it, but I, I, I see, like, I, I've watched Fox News. I didn't believe it, but just trying to understand the perspective on like, how are you believing this so easily? So I think kind of reading and learning from both sides of the coin has really given me a well-versed perspective on, you know, what I choose to believe and how I choose to move within this world. And that is something I want to talk to you about here in a minute, which is resistance that you occasionally often run into with your work. But I'm also wondering, you know, you mentioned talking fast because you have a lot of ideas, right? You're a runner. That's how you want to experience the wind. And some people may interpret fast talking as nervous. What's something else that people get wrong about you? I think sometimes people think because I went to Harvard and Berkeley that I grew up with like a super spoiled kid. I grew up without electronics. My mom didn't believe in TV. I only had books. The lifestyle I have now is not reflective of the lifestyle I had growing up. Like even something as simple as getting a pair of Nikes. I always wanted a pair of Nikes because, you know, I was, I was a black kid in America. I wanted Nikes and I wanted Jordans. My mom would say things like, I don't believe in $100 tennis shoes, you know, and I'd ask for Nikes or Jordans for my birthday. And I remember my mom would give me stocks and shares in Nike and Jordan and be like, you own some of Nike and Jordan. I'd have, you know, two shares. She's like, feel free to sell your shares at any time and go buy yourself some shoes. Or you can hold like just little things. And I think like, you know, I had bands and I just had very, very bare minimum. My mom's, a, I think, a physical minimalist. And so I think, you know, the way that they freely give me creative, like they pay for experiences or learning before they'd ever pay for me to have like Uggs or like true religions or like, you know, just rich girl stuff. My mom would be like, Sarah, you're a small fish in the wrong pond. This is not your pond. Your dad and I are not wealthy. We're sacrificing for you to be in this school. And I think often something that's really different is the school that I went into is like, if you know, Bay Area, it's like in Walnut Creek. We lived an hour away. So my mom would have to drive me an hour every morning to go to school because the school that I you know, went to was a private school in the area we couldn't afford to live in. And so I think often, you know, when people say, oh, you went to a really good school. Oh, you know, your parents supported all these things. It's like they lived in a very cheaper area to be able to drive me into, you know, and I think education is just a fundamental core value of what my parents believed in. And so I think kind of understanding that, I think also understanding the intersectionality of being an only child. I think a lot of the opportunities I was afforded is because my mom was, she had me at an old age. My parents are old. And I think like growing up with my peers, my parents are the age of a lot of my friends' grandparents. And so I think kind of recognizing they had me old. Why did they have me old? They wanted to, you know, save and they wanted to, you know, have a house and they wanted to pay off their college loans before they had a kid. My mom's just like, you know, my mom's a very practical planner. And one thing I remember saying like, mom, like, I'm 10. I want to go to Disneyland. She's like, Sarah, I'll bring a babysitter and take you to Disneyland, but I don't like rides. I'm too old for that. I mean, why'd you have me so old? Mom's like, Sarah, I had you old because if you came out with one eye, one ear, and one lung, I wanted to be able to afford to keep you alive and give you the best quality of life. You know, health isn't given. And I just wanted to be very, I wanted to be overprepared instead of underprepared. I'd never want, and I'm just like, I mean, I understand, but I think growing up with older parents, you know, there was a lot of conversations at the dinner table. And our family trips were museums and history tours and cultural experiences. And I think because I was their only child, you know, they were able to afford a lot. Like my dad retired when I was still in high school. So I think that, you know, my experience having older parents has really been drastically different than a lot of my peers. And it's like for some benefit, like I can see the pros and cons, but I think it's really changed and challenged the way that, you know, I view parenting. Parenting is a really big ordeal. And so I think it's a lot more than I think a lot of my, a lot of my friends have, I'm 27. A lot of my friends have kids and I'm like, wow, like, and they're underwater. And it's not a judgment, but it's just understanding that I think 
it's given me a, a pause on understanding how big, particularly in the Bay Area, kids are really expensive. The cost of living, like I have roommates, I live with roommates, like it's very much like I'm independent, but I'm not by myself. And so I think that like, it just caused me to really slow down and really take life with like, I enjoy doing what I like doing. I enjoy my job. I enjoy, as she say, I enjoy working with kids. I have just a lot of relationships that I think are familiar. Being an only child, you know, has really taught me that the people I love, I love hard. And it's like, I can have family without having blood around. And so I think that often a lot of people in the quilting world, you know, are like family and those friendships, you know, mean a lot. So Sarah, I'd like to start shifting our conversation towards SJSA just a little bit. I'm curious to know about kind of the origins of SJSA, but maybe not the origin story so much, right? I know that you've said that a pivotal point in your own personal artistic was the killing of Trayvon Martin in February of 2012, and how when you looked around, the folks in your quilting circles, mostly white, maybe all white, seemed to be having very little, uh, it occupied very little bandwidth in their day-to-day, and that flipped a switch in you. Your initial reaction when you talked to your mom was to make a quilt. She suggested you make a quilt about it, and that's a beautiful piece that people should see. But then can, I'm curious to poke around a little bit the space between making the Trayvon Martin quilt and the formation of the idea of SJSA, right? How do you get from the quilt to the organization? Yeah, I think SJSA was really, you know, kind of created in the frustration of the white supremacy space that quilting often upholds. And I, I genuinely mean that. And not that my friends were, you know, racist, but it was really just lack of empathy, lack of, you know, impact. And I think more than anything, it was a lack of impact didn't really make a dent in their lives like it did for Black America. I think when Trayvon got killed, it was a catalyst. Black America was mourning at another young life lost due to senseless racism. And I think white America was like, oh, you know, that, that's another, you know, obviously some people cared, but it didn't have the same impact it did on Black America. So I think that was just a personal moment of me reflecting. I'm making quilts of flying geese and paper piece stars, and I'm making double wedding ring quilts because I want to learn techniques. But really, for what purpose? Is it for me? Is it for gifts? Is it for, and I give gifts. All my mom's sisters and all my, you know, aunts and uncles, I want everyone to have a quilt. But more than that, I think it was like, I'm spending time, money, and energy making quilts, not without a purpose, but without a greater message. And I think that in this art form, you could definitely have your voice. So my mom suggested I make the quilt, and then I made the quilt. And it was met with such backlash from the industry that had loved me for so long. By that, I mean, you know, I would enter it in shows. Everyone said no. The local quilt stores that would, you know, I could make any quilt. And they put the little quilt in the corner, you know, just to encourage, you know, a 16-year-old is sewing, you know, let's, let's honor and highlight them. Encourage. It's not even about honoring. My quilts weren't necessarily the best. But it was about encouragement. But for me to make a quilt that, you know, really had a message and impact for me and everyone to kind of deliberately turn their back to this quilt, to the message, and to just the encouragement alone, like, oh, yeah, you should go back to double wedding rings. It was really kind of showing me that silence is violence and that I, I wasn't okay being silent in this industry. I think the shift between making the quilt and starting SGSA was realizing that I had to go show this quilt in other spaces because the quilt world wasn't accepting it. So, you know, I can't bring the quilt to, you know, the local quilt shows, the local state fairs. It wasn't being accepted. I'd send the photo and they would accept my other nine quilts of traditional patterns, they'd ignore the Trayvon Martin art quilt. And it was like, to get a rejection as a 16 year old, you know, most quilt shows don't reject pieces under 18. Like that's kind of an unspoken rule. Like you don't really reject kids quilts because regardless of how well the seams are, you know, you're encouraging the next generation. So to get it rejected from a space that not only I had genuinely felt like I was a part of, but I'd given so much time to, it was really kind of a, an eye opening on wow, like, I'm not as accepted here as I thought I was. And I felt really, you know, tokenized and like, I'm here for a diversity token. Like, this is feeling like my private high school experience. You know, you guys don't want to hear me talk in class, but you want to put my face on every brochure you have for the school. I don't like it here. I want to make a new space. So as I brought the quilt into other spaces, into my church, my very black church, I brought it into local high schools. I brought it into UC Berkeley spaces. When I started college, I realized every young person that saw that quilt while they didn't know how to sew, they said, I want to make my own quilt about their own issue, their own police brutality or their own, you know, income or gentrification. Or It was the idea of making a quilt because they had something they wanted to share. That was the common feedback I was getting. Whereas in quilt shows, it's like, oh, you know, great, you made a quilt. Let's judge your scenes. When I brought the quilt outside of quilting spaces, it was like, wow, I love that you made this. I also want to make my own. And so as I would bring it into spaces and everyone would just share their feedback on, I don't know how to sew, but I'd love to learn. 
it kind of sparked a, how can we create a free space where everyone can make their own quilt on whatever issue they want without the quarter inch seams, without the seam rippers, without the rigidity that sewing lends itself to. You know, as you go into sewing, a quilting instructor will tell you, this is what we're making. And if you do it wrong, they're going to let you know, it's okay, pick it out. And I think in creating SGSA, it was a space where you don't need to pick it out because there's no mistakes because you're the one not only creating this piece, but you're also designing this piece. I think it's like I unlearned a lot of the teaching techniques, you know, and I, I made patterns. I made, I mean, you name it. I know how to teach people how to do it the right way. But I think SGSA was a space where there is no right way. And I think that creating that free creative space, creating that brave creative space, a lot of people, you know, came in and really fell in love with sewing for not what it's traditionally taught to be. Yeah, because like I've heard you say that you don't see yourself as teaching quilters. You see yourself teaching art quilters. And that's where you start. Right. It starts with the expression. It starts with the message. And then if you feel like you need to learn specific skills or techniques, you go back. Right. It's it's like I'm teaching it the opposite way of what I learned, because I think often I can't tell you how many times I've been in class where the teacher would, you know, be chastising me, Sarah, you finished all your nine patches first, but half of them, the seams don't match. My mom would come in and be like, you know, I understand that there's a right way to do it. My daughter's here to have fun. And my mom would be the only one that would have my back. In terms of like, I'm here because I want to make a quilt, not because I want it to be judged and be a masterpiece. And I mean, as I got older, I think my desire and yearning for perfection definitely dramatically, you know, increased. But when I first started, I sewed because I wanted to be the first one done because I wanted to enjoy that process. I didn't care about, because at the end of the day, my family's going to love it regardless. It didn't matter how well my seams matched. But as I got older, you know, I wanted to iron to the dark side of the fabric and I wanted to make the niche. And, you know, that came with age. But I think, you know, from nine to 12, I was just having fun. And I think often, you know, some of the adult spaces that, you know, I was in didn't agree with my methodology, didn't agree with, you know, how I even cut fabric. But I think ultimately, after they saw how precise I could cut, even though I wasn't following the grids on rulers, people started paying me to cut out their own quilts. As an 11 year old, I would cut out an entire king size quilt in a few hours because it was fun and I could do it fast and I could do it well. So I would just pre cut out, you know, they'd be like, oh, I want to take this class. I, I could read the material, you know, I, I could cut a quilt, but they'd be like, it was definitely met with a lot of resistance initially. What was it, do you think, Sarah, like when you took Trayvon's quilt to Berkeley or shown around and people were like, oh, I want to make one. I don't see that happening if you were to have taken like a painting to school with you or if you'd taken a photograph to school with you or if you'd taken, I don't know. But you took a quilt and people's natural reaction seemed to be, I want to do that too. Why, why do you think that is? What do you attribute that to? I think it's because fabric's a medium, something we're all comfortable with. And I think, you know, I know a lot of kids that I've met that have never painted anything in their life. They've never glass blown anything in their life. They've never used clay in their life. And they're going to live, unfortunately, and die never using those mediums. But I think because quilting is something that everyone has some experience with and touch. When you wake up, you touch clothes. When you go to sleep, you touch clothes. You sleep in fabric. You sleep in blankets. You know, I think we all have such a comforting experience with fabric. And I think that, you know, I think really just the familiarity with the medium. I think often the community aspect that surrounds sewing. When you think of quilting and sewing, you also often think of quilting and sewing circles. You know it's a community. You know you can get help. And I think often when it's like a, you designed that, you made it, there's a lot less rule. Like I think if I would have shown a double wedding ring quilt and brought it into those spaces, people wouldn't have said they wanted to do that because that looks hard. That looks like this is done the right way. I don't think, like there's an intimidation. When you go to quilt shows, when you go to Houston Quilt Festival and you see, you know, these intricate quilts that someone has spent five years making this one quilt. I don't look at that quilt and say, I want to see it. I look at that quilt and say, dang, that's a beautiful technique. And then I often wonder about the privilege of time. How much time did you have to make that? How much afternoons do you have a full sewing studio? Or do you sew in the kitchen in a house full of roommates? How many years have you been able to keep all this? I think of housing stability. I think of space. I think of socioeconomic income. I think of work-life schedule. I think of so many things because some quotes, and you can even read the art statement, this quote took me nine years. There's not been one project I could say that has taken me, you know, over one year just because so many other factors in life have happened where I don't, you know, like that's not something I personally at this moment in my life have the privilege of time to commit, you know, one year to a project. But I love going to quotes and I love seeing these quotes that have taken the SACWA quilt show, you know, as a board member of SACWA, SACWA quilters make some of the most phenomenal things, just phenomenal. And I always can go, I mean, even Faith Ringgold, like just going, Visa, like when you go and see these artists work, it's like, wow. And then, you know, if you find out how long it took them, it's like another layer of like just awe and amazement. And I think that, you know, when you see someone who's made a quilt about something that's passionate to them and like, you know, there's no pattern, I'm in charge of it, I designed it. I think there's a level of, 
I could do that too because I'm going to be in charge of it start to finish. When kids see, and I, I say this because I show them Bisa Butler's quilts, no kid says they want to make that. They go, wow, I'm inspired. I want to make my own. No one wants to make hers. You know why? Because hers look really difficult. Hers look like you have to have an art background. Hers look like she has, you know, a master's in art and she's just incredibly talented. You know, not everyone wants to aspire to copy the goat. You know, and I'm just giving all the props because she's the Beyonce of the quilt world. You know, I'm not, no one's trying to copy Bisa's art, but they're like, wow, she made people. I want to make my own people. My people might be stick figures, but nevertheless, I'm inspired. You know what I mean? Because I think bringing Trayvon in, people didn't want to make portrait quilts. They didn't want to make the face of a murdered teen. They wanted to make their own quilt. And they saw that I made mine about what I cared about. And they're like, I want mine to be on gentrification. I want mine to be on sexual assault. I want mine to be on sex trafficking. I want mine to be on campus rape. And so they had their own ideas. And so in having those conversations, I think it created, it dropped the barrier. Drop the barrier because I think often when you show quilts or even when you take someone to a quilt show, you just show them in a world of like, this is so much talent. It's not about having the talent. It's about having something you want to say. And in the message that I talked about Trayvon, I wasn't talking about raw edge applique. I wasn't talking about color theory. And I wasn't talking about the things that it took to make that quilt. I was talking about, I cared about something. I drew an image. I created the quilt. And you guys can do it too. Let's figure it out. We got to figure out how to get some fabric. And so I think kind of dropping the barriers of entry of what was needed to create that piece really shifted. Because when, you know, I bring in a double wedding ring quilt, when I bring in a paper piece and quilt, it's about the talent. Because you have to follow a pattern to make those quilts. Trayvon, I just layered and glued, guys. I just layered and glued. And if you need help, I can help you too. It was a different entry point and it was a different methodology that made people a lot more familiar with and, and have the confidence to feel inspired to create their own. It seems like there's this kind of mythology around quilting that all quilters come from like a lineage of quilters. But we know that's not the case. There's a lot of folks out there who are drawn to quilting who can't point to a single family member, say, yeah, they quilt, they sew. What's your experience been, Sarah? How do we open up the quilting tent? How do we lower the barriers of entry to get more people into this thing? I think we've got to make it free. And I think free, not saying that people are low income, but I think that there's there's a risk in starting sewing. To start a first quilt, to take a quilt class, you need a rotary cutter, a ruler, a this or that. Like spending a few hundred dollars to make your first quilt, whether or not you know if you're going to enjoy it, is a cost that a lot of people can't afford to make. When you make something free, those that love it, well, then it will become a priority. The Starbucks drinks for millennials can stop for them to go buy a few yardages, for them to learn to embroider. The avocado toast can wean down a bit, metaphorically speaking, if you want to prioritize it, but you can't prioritize something you've never done. And I think that that's kind of key of like free sewing spaces, free sewing circles, free library places. I think that sewing is a medium that you can pick up and transport, whether you start with embroidery, whether you start with quilting, whether you start with hand sewing, whether you start with applique, whether you start with just raw edge gluing. I think making it free and bringing it into spaces that are traditionally not even just underserved, but marginally just like they're just communities of concentrated disadvantage. It's like when you say that they're underserved, it's saying that like, oh, people aren't doing it for them. These are like, it's intentional. The space is like in juvenile hall, these kids are in there because of systems failing kids. And these kids are in there because of lack of parenting. These kids are in there because of lack of resources, lack of opportunity. I think when you give it to spaces where, you know, people don't have much, they can really get hooked on it and do a lot. There's a few kids that now love to upholster. And they're like, Sarah, you know, I can upholster. And, and it was like that they started that. And then as they went to, you know, trade school and other options, you know, they're 20 years old now. And they we did a free sewing workshop at 16. But like, there's so much you can do. You can become a tailor. You can become an upholsterer. You can do curtains. You can do drapery. You can do boat recovery. There's so much in the world of fabric. But if kids don't ever touch it, they don't even know that a career opportunity could even be possible there. And I think more than making it free, it has to be a space people want to go to. White spaces can't just say, and I say white spaces, speaking very metaphorically, like in Kansas or in Arkansas or in Paducah, Kentucky, perhaps. You can't just say, oh, it's a free space. And then you come in and want people to be hit with harm, or want people to be hit with microaggressions, or want people to be hit with, you know, the feeling of not belonging. I think often a metaphor that I love about the quilting industry is the quilting industry says it's inclusive. Anyone can come to the dance, you know, pay $5, you can get, you can be invited to the prom. But a lot of people of color, queer people, young people are never invited to dance. Who wants to go to prom if you're never going to be invited to dance? And I mean that in the sense of you can be in the room, but that doesn't mean you're going to feel included. It doesn't mean you're going to feel welcome. And I know firsthand, you know, I'd walk into quilting stores before, you know, high school, before the sew it's there and all the, the things that I did as I got older. And I'd walk in there and be touching batiks and be like, oh, you know, can I have some of this? 
people would be like, where's your mom? Can you afford this? Like before it would even be cut. Yes, I can. I have my mom's card. Are you sure? Well, please bring her in before we start cutting this. This stuff is expensive. My mom would come in, you know, and she'd be like, please let my daughter, you know, pick out what she wants. She's not going to cut it and the card declined. And like, but those even microaggressions of you don't belong in this space. What are you doing here? You can't afford it. Those feelings are picked up on. Like, who wants to fight to be in a space that traditionally always makes you feel unwelcome? And it's more than just feeling welcomed because pseudo niceness veiled in racism isn't even pseudo niceness. You know, I, I've been to quote stores, you know, in Petaluma with Blue Lives Matter flag in their window. Not saying that, you know, it, it's about the politics, but like, I'm not going to feel comfortable in that space. There's so many things. I think often something that, you know, I'd love to ask all quote makers, you know, when you walk in here, what do you have to make queer people feel welcomed? What do you have? And I, I think about this, what do you have to make black people feel welcomed? What do you have to make young people feel welcome? And I mean that, don't say, oh, I have African prints over there. That's not what I'm speaking of. I mean, what do you have? Do you have a Black Lives Matter sign? Do you have a all, you know, all lives matter sign? Do you have a love is love, science is real, you know? Like, what do you have that you can physically point to in these spaces that let everyone know that they're welcomed in this space? Because oftentimes, quilting as an industry is catered towards one audience, and that's all that it's, you know, welcomed for. So I think, like, as a teacher in my classroom, and it's my peers' classroom, I would say, make sure you have something that you can point to that, you know, like the queer kids, you should have a whole queer lit section on the bookshelf that you know they're welcomed. And if you, I have a section here, you, you guys are welcome, your experiences are valued, I'm going to teach, you know, feel free to let me know. You can have pronoun pins, little things you can have that will let everyone know. You know, Black Lives Matter, you can have Black Lives Matter flag sign. You can have books like Just Mercy and you can have Brian Stevenson. And you can have Equal Justice Institute. You can have literature that will make people feel welcome. You can have more than African fabric. You can have fabrics of kids with brown kids on it. I think oftentimes people are like, oh, I have black fabric. I don't mean African fabric. I mean, do you have fabrics of normal family and kids and people playing? Is every print of a family in your quilt store only a white family? You've not thought to diversify even the, like, if, if there's only, if the only black fabric in here is African fabrics, we're not reflected in anything else. We're not in the novelty. We're not in, you know, I've had people say, I have a Civil War fabric section. Why is that synonymous to blackness? What are you talking about? And I don't know many black people in my own network that want to sew Civil War quilts. You know, like that's not like, and that's your identity of what blackness is. And boy, you have a lot of learning to do. And I'd encourage you to dive in. It's not a give up. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's bringing it in, but not expecting that emotional labor to be on a person of color. You need to do some work because what do you have for young people? And what I mean by that, you could have a free embroidery kit for anyone under 18 that walks in. There could be a little sampler. There could be a, a stencil. There could be, it could be anything. You could but just, when kids come in and they might not be able to afford your $16 yard fabric, but they're interested in looking, let there be something that young kids could take to leave with to get started. I mean, it doesn't have to be expensive. It can be just embroider your name. There's a, a thread, you know, give them one DNC thread. Don't even give them the whole floss pack. Give them one thread, a needle, and say, this is how you can embroider your name. In fact, you know, have those blue erasable markers on the table where they can write their name out and then take it home and sew it. You don't even need to give them the marker because I know they're $4. Just let them, like, there's so many things you can do to include young people, to include others. And by others, I mean the global majority. I just mean not the predominant quilting majority. You have to think of who you're catering your spaces to because you can't say, well, no one's coming into my shop. It's more than just saying anyone is welcome. What are you doing to make people feel invited? There's a difference. Because none of us want to be that kid standing around awkward on the side of the gym, not getting asked to dance. That's exactly it. And I think that's how a lot of people feel. They're standing awkwardly. So it's like, why go to prom if you know you're not going to be asked to dance? So thinking about resistance, which is unfortunately a natural part of the work and the mission that you have. You're not doing the work you do because everything's going well in the society, right? How do you handle that? How do you like not let it get you down? How do you keep your focus? I do a lot of self-care, self-care and things that I create. I love to cook. I love to go to museums. I have amazing friends. I have amazing, like I really, SGFA is definitely, you know, one third of my life, but I have two thirds that are also equally as fulfilling. I don't think I do anything in life that I don't enjoy. And so I think that kind of, you know, whether it's reading, like my parents, you know, basically buy me four books a month on their card on our Amazon account. And just being able to buy any literature I want, you know, book a month, book a week rather, I've made sure I've read over 52 books last year. Like reading is my self-care. Learning is my self-care. Friend time is my self-care. Cooking is my self-care. Going to PIQF this weekend will be some of my self-care to just be in fabric shops, to meet quilters, to learn techniques, 
I definitely love being inspired. Friendships that I have on Instagram, like there's so much that I kind of do to, you know, stay uplifted. I think that one third, like I think the resistance SGSA has faced in its inception was a lot greater than it is nowadays. And I think that's because of the community. And I think there's, you know, like in 2020, that Leland block, that was some of the worst we got. That was only two years ago. But I think it's because of where it was based. It came out in Paducah, Kentucky. That reaction wouldn't have happened in the Bay Area. And thankfully, although I can't really afford it, I'm happy to live in the Bay Area. You know, I'm surrounded by people that would never treat me like they would in Paducah, Kentucky. That's just, it couldn't be possible if I lived in Paducah, Kentucky, or even Little Rock, Arkansas. And not giving shade to those areas, as you know, all states have value. But just there's a level of community that's on these urban metropolitan cities that have diversity. And I think that a lot of like-minded people happen to live in the Bay Area where you can be met with love. It's like when we went to a quilt show in Tampa, we were met with a lot of hate. You know, when we went to a quilt show in Reno, we were met with a lot of hate. But when we have a quilt show in San Francisco or Oakland, the love supersedes the hate that those shows could ever do. And I think that it's just often about community, often about education, often about political ideology. It's often about love and empathy. It's often about the diversity in their own families. In the Bay Area, so many white quilters have diverse family, like blended families. They have you know, mixed grandkids. And I think the proximity to understanding different points of view is different when you're entrenched in a community. If you live in a homogeneously you know, white community, how much would you know about other things? Not, you know, saying that it's okay, but I think often ignorance is often rooted in, you know, lived experience. And I think that, you know, I could never change the lived experience of someone who's grown up without, you know, diverse friends. So it's like, but I'm not here to change the minds of people who, you know, don't want to learn. I'm here to just give fabric and thread and, and tools and access and creativity to marginalized groups that often don't have their voice heard. There's a quote from Aaron Dottie Roy, like is one of the fundamental quotes in creating SUSA that says, there's no such thing as the voiceless. Only the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard. And I think often the participants in SGSA workshop are either the A, deliberately silenced by greater powers, et cetera, et cetera, or the preferably unheard. We do workshops in high schools. We do workshops in juvenile halls. We do workshops in adult jails. No one's listening to those that are on the marginalized outskirts of society. And yes, you know, people make mistakes. You know what? Restorative justice is real. You can't throw, again, the baby out with the bathwater. Because a kid makes a mistake doesn't mean, you know, they need to be ostracized for the rest of their life. That's going to keep perpetuating systems and, of oppression and, and recidivism. You've got to, you know, be able to welcome people back in. And so I think those kind of fundamental values have really kind of pushed back. But I think often, I should say, has a lot of amazing allies that will step up and do something. If you see something, say something. You know, silence is violence. I think now we have a culture of people will, will say and do things that make it very different to kind of understand that you're, you're not just going to let People berate this, whether it's on Instagram, on Facebook, or in person. People will, will speak up and say something. Can I ask what your relationship is with anticipated resistance, right? So you mentioned the Leland quilt block situation that happened, in which a kid that was part of SJSA created a quilt pattern. Well, how about I let you tell the story? Can you tell us what the Leland situation was? So that leading to, so how do you think about resistance going into a new project now moving forward? So we had an amazing exhibit at the Paducah Museum, the curator, the CEO, we loved, you know, the staff there. It was amazing. They offered us the opportunity to be an exhibit and we designed a quote block for their block of the month program. And so we had this kid, it was a white kid from Baltimore named Leland, he designed this pattern. It was an amazing pattern. He made his own block. And so we asked a volunteer, amazing woman named Melinda, turn it into a paper piece pattern. She turned it into a paper piece pattern. We gave it to the Paducah staff. The Paducah staff said, great. And it was just a block that depicted a pencil eraser and the word injustice. And I-N was kind of shaded out, showing that we're erasing in injustice because we want a just world or inequality or, yeah, I think it was injustice. So, you know, we, we designed it. We gave it to the Paducah staff. Paducah staff gave us no red flags because they liked it. And they were like, oh, this is great. Very PG. We have blocks ranging from abortion to gun control. We picked a very PG block for Paducah in anticipation of resistance. So we, on our side, thought we had our bases covered. You know, like, we've got this. We're giving you a block. And no one, who can disagree with the word injustice and a pencil? You know, there's no Roe versus Wade. There's no school shootings. It's, we're picking a very PG thing. So all of America can just appreciate the block and keep it going. And in January 2020, that block came out and it was just lit up with hate lit up with hate for the organization, lit up with hate for the origin, let's just say, lit up with hate for them saying it was a political message. It wasn't supposed to be a political message. It's just erasing injustice in the world. 
And we got dozens and dozens of emails of quilters, particularly from Kentucky, letting us know that there's no such thing as injustice in the world anymore. Everyone has equal rights. People need to work harder and you know stop complaining. And if you don't like it, people need to move or leave the country. All sorts of just just racist viatrol. And I think that initially it was about let's protect Leland's feelings. Leland, don't look at this. These quilters aren't reflective. Your block design is amazing. He was sad. Then we shared it with the SSA community. They started making the block in allyship and support. And I mean, one quilter got Leland's quilt block design tattooed on her arm. That was the, the stamp of approval. I mean, from Leland going from it being hated, being sad to someone tattooed his design, that was the arc of just, it went from sadness to like overzealousness of like, wow, I did that. So, you know, he did that and it was ended with, you know, positivity, but I think it gave us another level of like the demographics. Where is this? We want to bring kids there. This is going to be a safe place. And we ask about your membership base because bringing kids into a space where they're going to be hit with hate, something we never want to do. And we've made that mistake a few times. You know, we, we brought kids to Bay Area shows, you know, more Bakersfield-ish area, if you're familiar with California and, you know, closer to Central Valley at Orange County. It's not met with the same level of love that would it be in LA or in Oakland or San Francisco. You know, just kind of recognizing we really want to know the audience before we ever bring kids in. I could be in those space because, you know, emotional abuse doesn't doesn't mean much coming from cultures like, ooh, big whoop. If you're racist and you know it, clap your hands. You don't need to let me know you don't like it. You can just walk away. But nevertheless, you know, I think that I have the level of thick skin that, you know, I've gained through being in this industry that, you know, I'm kind of like unbothered and I think that I can have enough friends and allies around to help kind of mitigate and squash those conversations but I think in how we anticipate resistance now you know we're really just intentional I think we're more intentional with where what spaces we bring kids into we want to bring kids into spaces not optionally where people are opting in because they want to come learn and listen so it's like we're not just we're not going to be forced presenters at a group that might or might not like us it's like we want them to know what it is and we want them to come Maybe charge five dollars because I don't think if you don't like what we're gonna say, you pay five dollars to come listen to it. Like those kind of things. But I think really, if everyone liked what we were doing, what we were doing wouldn't be necessary. So I think that there's a level of pushing and kind of challenging the norms on what quotes are valued, what quotes mean a lot, what quotes deserve to be displayed, what quotes, you know, what's the good quilt, and kind of pushing on this dichotomy of like there shouldn't be a such thing as a good quilt. Regardless, if I say a quote to the message I don't agree, I don't want to get it taken down from the quilt show. It's just, I don't agree with it. That's fine. I don't think that all art has to be a monolithic experience and a monolithic view. I think recognizing that all voices, you shouldn't trump anybody's, don't dim anybody's light. Don't yuck somebody else's yum. And I think often, and I say this with love, as old as the quilting world is, that saying of like, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, isn't adhered to. Because quilters often can be some of you know the most, the loudest voices in the room on what they don't like. You know, I think I grew up, you know, with my mom and, and all the adults in my life. If you don't have anything nice to say, just don't say anything at all. And I think that, like, the culture is not to listen to a rule. that It's just a basic kind of, just a human kindness. It's not about, you know, anything else other than just be nice. You know, someone spent time on it. Someone loved it. That's fine. If they like it, it's great. Picasso. Everybody can make their own art. I don't think that there's a level of policing other people's art in the quilt world that the quilt world really needs to work on moving past. The threads of resistance, those quotes about Trump that quilt shows took them down. It's not fair. The quilt world can't be aligned with levels of silencing other voices. The quilt world has got to be about, it's not just equality, it's about equity. And if traditionally all these voices have been silenced for the global decades of years, quilt world needs to do some very intentional work to bringing these voices and faces up because they've trumped them down for so long. And so I think, you know, MQG, working on anti-racist committees, working on diversity, inclusion, and belonging. People are starting now to care. And I think that our last few years have really shown a light on some of the stains that we have and, and you know, some of the areas to improve. As Amanda Gorman said, America's not finished. The court world's not finished. And the industry is in a, it is what it is. It's always going to be changing. And it takes people to be, you know, kind of pushing the boulder and, and making more space for other people, other voices, other experiences, other types of artists. Quilting can't only be this monolithic, you know, small community. We've got to expand and not just expand, but we've got to be inclusive as we expand. And I don't mean just by physical presence, but I mean inviting them to dance as well. What is your measure for success? How do you know that SJSA is successful? What's your personal mark? I would say it's only the only metrics of measure success is when kids give us feedback. That happens. I mean, we have workshops all the time. Last week we had a workshop at St. Mary's College. We have workshops 
in Memphis at the end of this month. We have workshops at Cornell coming up. And I think when people say, I've never used this medium, I enjoyed it, I wanna learn more, can I have fabric? All the fabric that people donate to us, we're able to, very Robin Hood, not stealing, it's donated, but just give it back and like just give access. And when a kid says, hey, can I have a sewing machine? And a few months later, they're like, Sarah, thanks so much for the sewing machine. This is what I've been doing with it. It's those little seeds we're planting. As Tupac said, you know, I don't wanna change the world, but I might be able to spark the mind that can work on, you know, changing the world. Like it's that secondhand, you know, thing. I don't think that giving kids sewing exposure can change the world, but I do think giving kids, you know, the opportunity to experience and create art with the medium that can then change hearts, change minds. Like it's a slow process. You know, art can make people think, art can make people reflect, art can make people understand other people's experiences. And I think quilting is such a soft medium as, you know, other people have talked about. I'm like, it's warm, inviting and welcoming to have a quilt that, you know, often people want to, you know, be wrapped up in, cuddle with and have the juxtaposition of that quilt be about rape culture. That's jarring. Like you can really use, you can use both to, to really, you know, make the impact be so much stronger. I often think that a lot of the magic of quilts with a message is that people look at it and their first reaction is, oh, I know what this is. This is a quilt. My grandma made quilts. This is soft and this is friendly. And then they drop their guard. And then that's when the message hits them. And it hits them in a totally different spot than if they had walked up to a painting, another piece of artwork, like a painting or a photograph or whatnot. And they're only looking at it through an art lens. But people don't approach quilts the same way. And I think that's the, the quiet magic. It definitely, it, it's a double-edged sword because they go in thinking it's this and then you can like, you know, not stab them. I don't believe in all that kind of violence, but it drops the veil of like the guardedness because they're not coming in with a critical eye to critique it. They're coming in, you know, knowing it's a beautiful soft medium that they often, who doesn't have a quilt or a blanket? I think it's, it's really powerful to, to use the juxtaposition of, of messaging on quilts. What do you want to see? What do you hope for an SJSA in 10 years? And then maybe what do you hope for in the quote world in 10 years? I think both of them are the same. I hope for the quote world to have a generation of millennial and Gen Z quilters that are not only accepted in this space, but thriving in this space. It's one thing to be a part of the space. It's another thing to be thriving in the space. And I think that, you know, more sewing and by sewing, I don't mean home ec, but I mean sewing being a part of art practices in high schools, sewing being, you know, really seen as an art form, not as a, like moving away from the home ec kind of model of not hemming clothes and adding buttons, but really using sewing as an integral unit. When you do painting, when you do ceramics, you know, when you have AP art, sewing should be, you know, kind of in that medium. I think people are pioneering, Lisa Butler particularly, is pioneering quilting and art quilting as an art medium. And I think if we can push, you know, as, as Sacco promotes, push quilting, you know, as an art form, I think that level of exposure to allowing young people know that fabric and sewing is more than just creating clothes or and, and all of those like all equal you know all forms are important but I think really using sewing as an art form because I think often it's just slept on underappreciated or really unknown it's not known as an art form I have so many go teach AP art people about art mediums they don't know that fabric is one of them yeah my good friend Heidi likes to say that when she gets in a taxi cab and if she's having to talk with the driver the driver says well what do you do Heidi says well if I don't feel like talking, I tell him I'm a textile artist. Nobody knows what to do with that. If I do feel like talking, I tell him I'm a quilter. And then everybody's got a story. I'm wondering, so you mentioned Bisa. Who else do you have your eye on out there that is doing some some good, critical, thoughtful work? You know, I would say Bisa. I would obviously say Sean. I would say in terms of kind of pushing art. But I really think I would just have to give it to Bisa. And I would say just because she started so, like, not only did she start so young, she started quilting full time just a few years ago. She got her first long arm a few years ago. And I know that those art students that had her are just looking like, wow, they really had the 21st century Faith Ringgold. Faith Ringgold, obviously, giving credit to, you know, where it's due. Her Tar, tar Beach book and her, her quilts, like storytelling quilts. And I think that Beast is doing a really good job beyond just making art, but telling stories and telling history, history that's often forgotten. The fact that she's making quilted portrait of photos that are she's finding discarded imagine that like so many you know stories are discarded and so many photos haven't been picked up so to be picking up a forgotten family member's portrait and turn it into just a beautiful work of art and I think also the way she's doing it like she'll find a photo of, of kids and like you know their socks are dirty and their clothes are torn when she creates them not only will the face stay the same but the outfits will become regal and I think there's something in not showing it for the reality of the photo but for the what it could be 
I mean, the quote she made of Chadwick, you know, from Black Panther. I mean, he's a king. He was a king in the movie. He's a king in the quilt. But the quilt that she makes of normal kids, like, they're not as regal as she's making them, but she's cleaning up their outfits. She's making sure their hair is out of place in the photo. She's going to keep the face the same, but, you know, fix the bun. And I mean, just her level of detail and care, particularly to African-American stories and just, just Black American stories is just something that I think every, like, you don't need to be a quilter or a textile artist to know who Bisa Butler is. That's saying something. Because I think there's very few artists that have broken out of the textile industry in the same way she has. SJSA is a big umbrella. They got a lot of people. You got a lot of students you're working with. You have volunteer embroiderers. You have volunteer long armors. You're also doing quilts of remembrance, I believe, and a banner. Pro- I mean, you're spinning several plates at the same time. How do you need in this moment? What's the best way for folks to get involved with the mission? Shoot an email or Instagram DM because uh, a lot of like, you know, a DM is often easier to respond to than an email. I'd say a lot of the biggest need right now is long armors. If you know how to, you know, custom long arm, that's always, always needed because the banner project, remembrance quilts, all of that, you definitely need long arm. Those who have extra fabric to donate, the PO box is, in, is on the Instagram profile. We always need fabric. We're always using it for workshops, you know, sewing machines, rotaries, really, I think materials and supplies, as well as signing up to embroider. And if you haven't, it's on the website. You can sign up and border a block. If you're anywhere in the Bay Area, we have, you know, so days in California where, you know, you bring the machine, you bring good food, community, and sometimes music, and, and we just sew. And I think just kind of signing up to help, you know, and if you have more admin skills, feel free to reach out of like, there's admin stuff, you know, we can always use more volunteers for the Remembrance Project, or you can be a coordinator that assigns names to people. And, you know, if people have a question, is the portrait okay? Can I use denim? Just have an email and just, you know, kind of field some of those questions. Brilliant. And we'll put links to all of those contact information, things like that for you in the show notes below. So another thing I'm curious about, Sarah, is another project of yours, which is a book that you've recently published called Stitching Stolen Lives, Amplifying Voices, Empowering Youth, and Building Empathy Through Quilts that you co-wrote with Teresa Dury Wong. One thing I noticed in getting ready for our conversation is I went and read the Amazon reviews just to see what folks are saying. And they're all five-star reviews. People are loving what you and Teresa put out, except there's one, because there's always one. And I checked with you before the show, so I know this is okay to do, but I would like to read a line from this review. I'm just curious to know what you would say to this person. This person said, don't really understand how something like this, meaning your book and I'm working with youth in quotes, how something like this aids in the overall progress of relations in this country slash world. Yeah, I would say a few things. I would say one, did you look at any of the photos? I think two, Every community quilt that we create is a block made by a kid of the most important social justice issue to them. And I think as you look at like 20 plus quilts, you know, in a room or in a row, or even just as you lay them out on the floor, they're time capsules. When Donald Trump said, grab her by the pussy, kids felt that, kids heard that. When Obama had all those kids in cages and deportation was at an all-time high, kids felt that, they heard that. I think oftentimes, you know, not understanding that comment really kind of goes back to that quote from Aaron Dottie Roy of deliberately silenced or preferably unheard. The entire book is about voices of people that are not traditionally heard to. I would really just kind of want to ask, well, whose voice do you want to hear? Because there's a whole bunch of voices that, you know, you could have listened to. And even just looking at the art, you look at blocks ranging from air pollution to gun control to school shootings to school dress codes, you know, over-sexualizing women instead of telling guys to have more accountability. There's all sorts of voices. So it's really kind of a question on, it's working on relationships. And I wouldn't even say just necessarily America, but it's just, it's working on empathy. It's working on learning. It's working on understanding. It's working on realizing that just because, you know, people might be young or they might be coming from a place of not as much socioeconomic or even just privilege in general, doesn't mean that their voices are any less than. And I think oftentimes we listen to those who have commas and titles after their name. We listen to the MDs, we listen to the doctors, we listen to the, you know, what school did you go to? Like that kind of hierarchy on whose voice is valued in the room. We've got to kind of dismantle that because regardless of, a kid could speak on gentrification and the firsthand effects along with the intersection of educational inequities a lot better than a policymaker could because who went through it? But who's making the decisions? Because it's definitely not the kid who's been through it. And I've only learned so much about these issues firsthand. Understanding what happens when your, your family's being evicted from apartment to apartment or the threat of ICE or DACA and, you know, you can't do that. You go to four high schools, you know, in two years of high school, no wonder you're going to have C's and D's. That's why you're going to end up in an alternative school. 
not because you couldn't have done the work, but your educational, your continuity keeps getting disrupted. You can't go from different schools and then just pick up and start at the same pace that everyone else is. And school's not set up, you know, like there's not a standard curriculum. You go to different schools, you're doing different stuff. And so I think as kids get frustrated with systems that they're a part of without really having their agency or their, their voice and their autonomy, you know, not only listened to, but respected and not just like, oh, I hear you, but like, what are we going to do about it? Like listening without accountability and action doesn't really yield much. It's listening and partnering. Yeah. And you've got to do it with the community, not for the community. I think often adults want to do stuff for people, but it's like, you've got to do it with them. I think too, you know, for the person that said they don't understand how something like this aids in progress, the sadness that I feel in reading that is that look at the pictures right in front of you, read the stories here firsthand and see firsthand how this change is manifesting and the difference it's making. So it's like, I think the Bible says something like there are people who see, but don't perceive, right? It's like this person I'm assuming went through the book, but still did not perceive, didn't get it. I hope that person picks your book up one more time with fresh eyes and sees something this time, second time around, and then comes back and changes their review. I love to hear it. Sarah, this has been a beautiful hour. Thank you so much for lending your voice, your time, your experience, your hard-won wisdom with us here on Seams. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And there you have it. Thank you for listening. I hope you got something out of that conversation. And I would say make sure you're subscribed so you get all these episodes as soon as they drop. And think about leaving me that review, huh? Take care, and y'all go so something good. Mm-hmm.